This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. Police Bank is a member-owned bank. Therefore, the focus is always on its members. With an emphasis on people, Police Bank shows its commitment by supporting various organisations, community groups, social clubs and sporting teams within the policing community. Police Bank works hard to continue to protect the financial security and well-being of members of the police force and their families, friends and communities. Welcome to Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Real cops, real stories. I'm your host, Adam Shand. Violence in Sydney's underworld has hit the headlines in recent times with a spate of shootings related to organised crime. New South Wales Police has a long history of managing such outbreaks. To restore peace on the streets, police use what's called a disrupt and dismantle model. Suspects in violent offences are pursued for other serious matters, including drugs and firearms. With these individuals in custody, the Homicide Squad is better able to investigate the murders. The code of silence crumbles as gang members see a life beyond the control of the bosses who've landed them in jail. This is what happened in the Brothers for Life crime spree in 2012 and 2013. The gang rose quickly, but then fractured into two camps. One at Bankstown, led by the founder, Bassam Hamzi, from inside jail, and the other at Blacktown, by Farhad Kwame. Once trusted by Hamzi, Farhad had dreams of running Sydney on his own and was prepared to kill to achieve that. Homicide Detective Chief Inspector Glenn Brown was on the team that stopped Kwame and broke up the Brothers for Life gang saving numerous lives and turning others away from a life of crime. Glenn's kindly agreed to tell that story and also to share some insights from his career at Homicide. Glenn, welcome to Inside the New South Wales Police Force. I've got to say, you're one of the pioneers of this podcast. We started it while you were the manager of the Missing Persons Registry. We're continuing on. Thank you for your support in the podcast. My pleasure. You're back to Homicide. Yes. Before we talk about the Brothers for Life murders and your role in the prosecutions there. Tell us your path to homicide. I came to the Homicide Squad in 2011. At the time, I was working out in southwestern Sydney as a young detective and came to the Homicide Squad to work on a uh, an organised crime-type murder um, to help out with that job and then remain. Stayed there pretty much the rest of my career. You said to me before, like, you, you, this is your niche, homicide. Why is it? It doesn't suit everybody. Why is it your niche? I think it's such a challenging job is what I enjoy most. It's a bit of a battle. It's trying to work out what happened and find the evidence that will help you put some of these terrible people before courts to let them deal with them. How many homicide cases have you done now? Oh, I don't know. I imagine there would be um, 100 or so that I've worked on. Um, Some are obviously more memorable than others, but um, yeah, quite a few. Which are the ones that stick out for you? Probably the Brothers for Life murder. It was an incredibly challenging um, investigation, but there were others. There was the murder of Terry Falconer several years ago. It was a job that brought me to the Homicide Squad back in 2001, but that was a job that spanned around 10 years. It took 10 years for us to get a result with that, so that was quite challenging also. In 2012, drug dealers Anthony and Andrew Parrish and an associate, Matthew Lawton, were convicted of killing Falconer whom the Parrish brothers believe was involved in the murders of their grandparents. Let's go to Brothers for Life. That was a very dramatic, vivid period 
in Sydney. Everyone knows what happened there, well, I guess. In 2012-13, there was just an outbreak of violence across Sydney uh, centred around this feud between the Bankstown and Blacktown chapters of Brothers for Life. When did you come into the picture? What was your first introduction to this? Well, at the time uh, when all that was occurring, I was working down the south coast on uh, three related organised crime murders. And then there was the murder of Mahmoud Hamsey at Reevesby, I think it was in June of 2013. And I was brought up from the south coast to come and um, take carriage of that job. And what were the circumstances of that job? So on the 29th of October 2013, there was a shooting in Bardo Circuit at Reevesby. All I knew about the job at the time was that um, three unknown offenders had burst into a garage there, let off a number of shots and shot and killed Mahmoud Hamzi and also seriously injured Omar Ajaj. And early doors, there was a feeling that this was a case of mistaken identity. How did that come about? Well, the house was actually occupied by Mohammed Hamzi, um, often referred to as LC or Little Crazy. So we did presume right from the start that the intended target was Mohammed Hamzi and that Mahmoud Hamzi, his cousin, um, who was shot and killed, was um, shot mistakenly by the offenders. And so what were the early steps in that investigation? Well, we didn't know much at all about it. We had some CCTV from the street that showed a white Nissan Teeter, a white car driving up the street. We saw that car stop um, on that CCTV and three offenders get out. They all had balaclavas on. They all walked up the street. The white Nissan Teeter followed them with the headlights off. Then when they got near to the front of the house, they all just ran into the garage and then started letting loose with the three firearms that they were carrying. There were a number of people in the garage at the time who tried to run through a door into the house, but unfortunately, Mahmoud Hamzi was shot several times. Ultimately, he was shot twice in the head whilst he lay on the ground, and they were the fatal shots that killed him. Deb Wallace has talked about, she's now retired, a former Middle Eastern Organised Crime Squad. She talks about the fact that this was a tragedy, that, that this person was not involved in Brothers for Life. This was purely mistaken identity. Absolutely. Mahmoud Hamzi was the cousin of Mohammed Hamzi. He came from a lovely family. I spent some time with his family and they were wonderful, wonderful people. So in, in terms of that, it was tragic, yes. But it's really important to not to stereotype this whole community based on these these murders and this and this uh, crime spree, because the vast, vast, vast majority of these people are law-abiding, and the media is focused in on this little cohort, and and there's been a fair bit of stereotyping about the individuals. Absolutely, it was just a very unfortunate situation where Mahmoud Hamzi was visiting his cousin that night and socialising with him, and happened to be wearing a black baseball cap similar to what Mohammed Hamzi was wearing that night, and was mistakenly shot and killed. That was enough. Mm. It was a very tense time. This all came from the fallout between Bassam Hamzi, the original founder of Brothers for Life, and Fahad Kwame, who'd come in there. He was an Afghan background and, and he'd, he'd set up the Blacktown chapter and that was now in, in opposition, in conflict with the original Bankstown chapter. I think Fahad Kwame was a very ambitious person. Mohammed Hamzi had been running the Bankstown chapter of Brothers for Life and had been fairly quiet in some respects. I think Mohammed Hamzi knew well enough not to bring too much attention to himself, whereas Fahad Kwame didn't particularly care. I think he felt that it made him more powerful. The more obvious his activities were, um, he, he used that to try and recruit people into his gang and he used that to try and rule his gang through fear. 
So it did create a bit of tension between the two chapters. Um, as I said, I think Farhad was quite ambitious and ultimately probably wanted to take over the Bankstown chapter also. And it did create tension between those two groups. And Farhad Kwame had an interesting background. He was, he was um, from Afghanistan. He'd seen a lot of violence as a kid. He'd had problems when his family came out to Australia and he'd uh, been involved in juvenile crime. He'd also been diagnosed with various mental health conditions. Yes. It was not an easy background, but he was also very charismatic. He had two younger brothers, Mumtaz and Jamil, who were involved in his circle, but he was driving things, very charismatic character, as you say, very ambitious and could see an opportunity there. What was the opportunity, do you think? Drugs and money, That it was purely to commit crime and make money and, and to be powerful. I think that's what drove Fahad Kwame. There was an occasion, I remember, during the investigation where we captured Fahad Kwame telling um, members of his group that he wanted to rule Sydney. It's quite a strange thing to say, but he felt that he could rule Sydney. Well, it is strange, but it, it's been said before by a number of gangsters over the years, and they almost always come to grief. Sydney, right. Sydney's not a place that can be ruled for very long by one person. You had Kwame, who attracted a lot of young Afghan men to his group, and they were building up their numbers against the Lebanese-Australian-dominated yes. Bankstown chapter. And there were, there were some moments of just basic disrespect. I mean, Deb Wallace talks about one particular instance where the Lebanese Brothers for Lifers called the Afghan Brothers for Lifers trash cans, and mm. that was enough yes. to set things going. Yeah, that's right. And Fahed did try to recruit predominantly young Afghani males into his group. Fahed still had some members of his gang that were associated with the Lebanese community and he didn't trust those people. He purely wanted to trust the Afghanis that he recruited into his gang. And he ruled those guys with an iron fist. And part of your challenge as the homicide detective looking after this case was to create that link between someone who distanced himself from the actual act but was clearly the driving force behind those crimes? Well, there are numerous ways that we can solve crimes. Quite often these days, it's through forensic evidence. Unfortunately, with the Hamsey murder, we had absolutely no forensic evidence. We didn't have any DNA left at the scene. We didn't have descriptions of the offenders even because they were all wearing balaclavas. So we knew right from the start that our investigation was going to be incredibly reliant upon members of the gang deciding to give evidence against people who committed the crimes. That's right. And this is all very complex. Let's look at some let's look at the other murder that you were covering as well at the same time was Joe Antoon, who was a standover man who was also shot um, at home. What were the circumstances of that murder? Well that investigation was actually investigated by Detective Sergeant Pete Smith from the Homicide Squad, but it it was very linked to the investigation that we were conducting, but poor Aunt Joe Antoon was at home with his wife um, on that particular night when one of Fahed Kwame's gang members turned up at the front door and knocked on the door and then ultimately shot him a number of times through the door and killed him. Um, but that was purely at the behest of Fahed Kwame. What was the motive? Uh, from memory, Adam, I think um, Joe Antoon was involved in the construction industry, had a number of businesses. Um, for some reason, there was a conflict and people involved in those disputes uh, contracted Farhad Kwame to cause this to happen. Farhad simply got younger members of his gang to go and do his bidding and go and commit that crime on his behalf. So Farhad had no skin in the game, as it were, with Antoon. It was just a contract killing. That's right. 
that's a dangerous kind of occupation, taking on contract killings, because it means nobody's safe and you've got people out there who are prepared to take contracts to kill people they don't even know, no motive. Also difficult to solve, because there is no link between the, the person who's uh, conspiring to make it happen and the victim. How difficult does it make that kind of an investigation? Well, incredibly difficult. Um, in respect to the Antoon matter, it was simply the case that the gang member who committed that crime for Farhad Kwame ultimately was one of the gang members that decided to turn on Farhad and give evidence on our behalf. So that young gang member decided to admit his role in that crime, in that murder, um, and provide evidence against Farhad Kwame. It can be incredibly difficult trying to get some of these people to assist us rather than their leaders um, can take months, if not years, sometimes. Typically, what's what's the um, what's the approach you take in that situation? Because this is, I mean, these people were probably at just as much risk from their own people as anybody else. I guess there's one line of argument to say, well, it's only a matter of time before you fall foul of your boss, and is it better that you you make a good decision now? Well, that definitely plays a part in it. Um, there are numerous stories where Farhad Kwame seriously assaulted and at times even shot members of his own gang. He ruled through fear. So part of the strategy to get these people to help is always going to involve um, trying to make them see the light, to realise that their life is probably very limited if they remain in that environment. And there are some benefits to creating a better life for themselves. As you're talking to these witnesses, did they express the, the fear that this was going to happen or did they not think of the future? I don't think it's something they necessarily think about at the time, Adam, that they don't realise at the time they engage with these gangs that the end is going to be something terrible. They think that um, it's going to bring them something worthwhile. They see the gang's leaders driving fancy cars and having money to throw around. They have that lifestyle, the girls, the drugs, and it's something that they aspire to because they don't know any better. I think it's a big part of what we do, that we try to show them that there's a better life, that um, they can make a life for themselves without crime. Okay, we've got these two murders to investigate, Mahmoud Hamzi and Joe Antoon. At the same time, the Middle Eastern Organised Crime Squad is has got its hands full, stemming a, a range of non-fatal shootings, shootings of houses and other incidents. Deb Wallace, the former head of the of MEOX, who's now retired, said the, the, the strategy was about disrupting those crime gangs so homicide could get in and do their investigations to create the briefs against the, the leaders. How did that take place? I think it's something that, as an organisation, we did a long time ago with Task Force Gain and it proved to be very successful. And it worked again on this occasion. Before I engaged with the Hamzy murder, the Middle Eastern Organised Crime Squad were already actively targeting Brothers for Life. So when I engaged with the Hamzy murder investigation, they were already well and truly after uh, both the Bankstown and Blacktown chapter of Brothers for Life. So we worked together to achieve common goals there. Farhad Kwame had something of a fascination for Deb Wallace. There was a strategy put in place. As you were trying to prove his role in conspiring to have uh, Mahmoud Hamzi and Joe Antoon murdered, you could see a way through to proving that conspiracy through Kwame's obsession with Deb. How did that take place? I had Kwame is a very unusual character. He may well be charismatic, but he's 
also very unusual in other ways. Um, there was an occasion very early on in the investigation where Farhad travelled overseas. Coincidentally, he ended up on a plane travelling back to Australia with Deb Wallace. I'm not sure that Deb knew that Farhad Kwame was on the plane, but we captured some evidence over a telephone intercept where Farhad was talking to associates about the fact that he was on a plane with Deb Wallace. And he started making unusual comments about how um, he admired her and how he felt that they were both generals of their armies and he was disappointed with himself for not engaging with Deb Wallace when he saw her on the plane. So it was um, quite an unusual thing to listen to, but it caused us to develop a strategy then to try and um, have Deb Wallace re-engage with him about this, this belief that Fahad Kwame was similar to her in so many ways and that he was the general of his army. We knew that Fahad Kwame ruled his gang through fear. We knew that they did um, all of the things that they did, the crimes that they committed under his orders, and we wanted to capture some evidence about that, that, um, that his gang wouldn't do anything without his approval or, in fact, without him ordering it to be done. So that strategy where we engaged Deb Wallace to approach Fahad Kwame was based on that desire that we wanted Farhad to make some admission to Deb Wallace that he ruled his gang and that they wouldn't do anything without him approving or ordering it. And this was to help prove the conspiracy, the hands-off approach to getting murders done. That's right. We knew Farhad Kwame wouldn't have been involved in the Hamsey murder. We knew that uh, he had a fairly solid alibi for the night that that occurred. So we were trying to prove that the members of his gang that committed that murder would have done it under his orders. We'll continue with Glenn Brown's story in a moment. But first, a message from our sponsors. Whether you're thinking about purchasing your first home or thinking about your next investment property, Police Bank has a range of loans to help make your dream of owning a home a reality. With deposit options starting as low as 5%, eligibility criteria applies. See terms and conditions in the show notes for more information. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Charles Sturt University, providing education for the New South Wales police force and law enforcement worldwide for over 30 years. Do you want to become a cop or further your policing career? We can help. Visit csu.edu.au forward slash policing to learn more. So you had a very elaborate plan that took quite a lot of stage managing. What was it? Well, it was quite a complex plan. It um, involved Farhad Kwame being taken from a location where he was in corrective services custody to a different location, having Deb Wallace with a very senior member of corrective services walk past the door of the room where he was. And the whole plan was predicated upon Farhad Kwame having the balls basically to yell out to Deb Wallace again, to engage with Deb Wallace because he was so disappointed that he didn't do it on the previous occasion when they were on the plane together. So that's what happened. Deb Wallace walked past the door and sure enough, Farhad Kwame called out to her and tried to engage with her. Deb acknowledged him and told her that, uh, told Farhad that she'd come back and talk to him later and sure enough, she did. She came back and engaged in conversation with Farhad Kwame for an hour and a half. They walked around that area of the prison together and Farhad Kwame did explain to Deb that he ruled the gang and that they wouldn't do anything without his approval. We needed evidence that Farhad Kwame's gang wouldn't have gone off and done this on their own, that they would have done it. 
by his order. Because conspiracy to murder charges are really important in terms of peace and security in our society, because if people can get away with conspiring but not participating in the direct murder, then our whole society is not as safe. So conspiracy is a very important tool, particularly when it comes to organised crime, because we know that the senior figures don't go and get their hands dirty. There's no need for them to carry the guns and go out and shoot people in the head unless they're trying to make some very public statement. They'll get junior members of the gang to do it and take the fall for them if they have to. You think there was a moment where the penny dropped, realised he'd been played and this strategy had really, his boastfulness had actually led to his downfall? I'm sure Fahad Kwame thought he was very smart, but he, like most criminals, made mistakes all over the place. I remember there being a time where I needed to know who he feared most in his gang, who he feared could roll and cause him the most trouble. And did that? Yes. <laughs> well, ultimately, I remember saying to Fahad Kwame that day before I left Supermax Jail that our investigation wouldn't stop until we caused every member of his gang to roll on him. Ultimately, 13 members did. What did he say back to that? I don't think he said anything. That's as I was standing and walking away, so he didn't have the opportunity to respond. Because the name of the gang, Brothers for Life, I mean, we all know that most crooks are not very staunch with each other for very long and other people have said that, you know, brothers for today, brothers for the next five minutes, they all ultimately, when they dock by themselves, will choose their own self-interest. We see this time and time again and I guess... We do see it play out time and time again. They may well fear that they, or think that they have close relationships with the people that they're engaged with committing crimes, but ultimately they have to fear that those people might one day turn on them. And it's something that we use to our advantage all the time. Kwame was a target at one stage. He was on the, on the boat Oscar on um, the 1st of January 2013 when it was attacked by uh, some gunmen and boat filled full of holes. He was shot in the, in the shoulder. Um, do you think that dissuaded him somewhat now that the, the, the violence was coming home to him? Well, I think he may well have learnt lessons from that. And he did fear greatly that... He might be harmed. Um, in fact, the entire motive for the Hamzi murder was based around the fact that he believed that Mohammed Hamzi was going to try and kill him. So he feared that um, Mohammed Hamzi was out to get him and he felt that he needed to get in first. The whole Hamzi murder unfolded on a particular night. Uh, in fact, it was the night when Mohammed Hamzi was killed. But earlier that night, Fahad Kwame was at a gym in Parramatta with a number of members of his gang when Amanda Crow, a female, turned up and had a conversation with him. Amanda explained to Farhad that she'd heard from her husband, who was incarcerated, that Mohammed Hamzi was out to get him, that he was going to kill him. Coincidentally, Farhad Kwame earlier that day had seen Mohammed Hamzi in a chance meeting, but that fed his fear then. And he also um, bumped into a couple of members of the Bankstown chapter of Brothers for Life that night, which again fed that fear that something was happening to cause him harm. And that was a catalyst for Farhad Kwame to get his gang together that night and ultimately to put together the plan that led to the murder of Mahmoud Hamzi. So what were the steps leading up to, the, to his arrest and charging? What were the, the decisive moments in making that decision? To charge Fahad Kwame? Yes. Well, Fahad Kwame and numerous other members of the gang were in fact arrested and charged for other matters very early on. They were charged in respect to drugs and guns that were found. So when we engaged in the Hamsey murder, what actually happened, Adam, was that, and I think Deb touches on it, that um, there were some guns and drugs found in a bag. So a lot of the gang were locked up 
very early on in the Hamsey murder investigation. So as we started to engage in our strategies and get some direction with the investigation, all of our targets were in fact in corrective services custody for other matters. So far had Mumtaz, Jamil Kwame, the three brothers and various other members of their gang were in custody during most of the Hamsey murder investigation. Nonetheless, it gave us some time to put the brief together and ultimately they were all charged on the 27th of October 2014. We charged Farhad Kwame, his younger brother Mumtaz Kwame, the youngest brother Jamil Kwame, Navid Kaleli and Amanda Crow. Um, and one other person with the murder of Mahmoud Hamzi and the wounding of Omar Ajaj. The fun wasn't over there. The court trial itself was quite dramatic, a spectacle for various reasons, and you were involved in that as well. Well, it was an incredibly complex trial. Initially, there were eight accused, eight members of Brothers for Life, including Amanda Crow, that were charged with various matters, and uh, a decision was made for there to be a joint trial where they would be tried for um, this large group of offences. Prior to the trial, two of those accused were severed for different reasons. Ultimately, Amanda Crow um, pled guilty and decided to assist authorities, so she wasn't involved in a majority of the trial either. But nonetheless, we had a, a complex trial with a number of accused, all being tried for various crimes, including the Antoon murder and the Hamsey murder. Um, it kicked off with a Basher inquiry in November 2015. That Basher inquiry ran through until December 2016. A Basher inquiry is a pre-trial hearing or voir dire, where the accused can cross-examine any new witnesses produced by the prosecution after the committal proceeding. Then there was complex legal argument that ran through until the trial commenced on the 4th of April 2016. And that uh, trial continued on until the 28th of September 2016, so for approximately six months when the jury retired and the jury were in fact out for six weeks considering their verdicts before they returned with guilty verdicts in respect to almost all of them. Yes, but there was a couple of dramatic moments in the court itself which I don't think anyone's expecting. I guess we've already touched on it, but there can quite often be a lot of tension amongst gang members and during that joint trial we had the three Kwame brothers in the dock at the trial with Mohammed Kalal and one other person. Uh, for whatever reason, there um, seemed to be developing tension between Mohammed Kalal and the three uh, Kwame brothers. At one point during the trial, whilst they were all sitting in the dock at court, Mumtaz Kwame got up and stabbed Mohammed Kalal in the neck with a pen. His younger mother, Jamil Kwame, then jumped in and started violently punching uh, Mohammed Kalal obviously caused a great deal of difficulty during the trial. Nonetheless, order was restored in there and the trial continued on. And then you had two jurors who were discharged. What happened there? Yes, we did. We had, I guess it's not uncommon to have jurors discharged, but during this trial, there were a number of police in court that observed interactions between two young female jurors and the two eldest Kwame brothers, Farhad and Mumtaz. Those interactions were observed over numerous days during the trial. Ultimately, that was brought to the attention of the court. I remember I ended up having to get in the witness box and give evidence about my own observations. Um, nonetheless, nothing happened at that time. Fortunately, sometime after that, the presiding judge, um, Justice Hamill, made his own observations of those interactions, which led to two of those jurors being discharged. It came to our attention after that, Adam, that um, those jurors were 
regularly in contact with the two Kwame brothers whilst they're in jail. Anything can happen in these cases, that's for sure. At the end of the day, justice was done. Fahad Kwame got a head sentence of 60 years. He won't be out until October 7, 2056. There's a couple of other incidents have happened in jail that have extended his sentence. Yes. And his plans to be the ruler of Sydney seem ridiculous and boastful now. And this cohort that he put together quickly fell apart. Those who hadn't informed on him certainly distanced themselves. And you had a chance to observe the progress out of gang life for some of these uh, former brothers for life. Adam, I think it's one of the most satisfying things for me, quite often with these organised crime type murders. We are um, so reliant upon members of the gang deciding to help us out. I mentioned earlier that there were 13 members of Farhad's gang that ultimately decided to assist us and give evidence against him. Some of those gang members are also still in jail, but the ones that have admitted their involvement, served their time and have now been released of all of those gang members, none of them have re-engaged in crime and all of them have gone on to get jobs and lead normal lives. You've had a chance to speak to some of them. How do they view this period or when they were in the gang? Well, again, it, it, it is probably the most satisfying thing about my job to have some of those people contact you afterwards and explain that um, they're so grateful for the fact that they were caught for doing what they were doing and that they were given an opportunity, a second chance in life perhaps, to have a normal life, to live a life better than serving a master in a gang. Yeah, very good point. The Brothers for Life murders were different because there were also threats against your own team. Um, what happened there? Yeah, it was a very difficult period during the investigation. There was a time where one of the gang members contacted me late one night um, to explain that they needed to see me urgently. We ended up meeting that gang member at a police premises, not knowing exactly what they wanted to speak to us about. They went on to explain that the gang had found uh, out where one of the investigative team lived and that they had a plan to kill four of the um, investigators involved in the investigation, two from Homicide and two from the Middle Eastern Organised Crime Squad. Then they went on to rattle off the home address of that investigator, so it was very concerning. And you were able to corroborate that, that threat? That's right. Yes, it was quite a credible threat. We were told by this gang member that Fahad Kwame wanted that done um, at the start of the trial to send a message to people that were planning on giving evidence against him that he could get to anyone, including police involved in the investigation. But the fact that it was foiled demonstrates the extent of his power, probably the decline of his power at that point where someone just quickly turned around and, and gave information. Exactly. I think um, we were fortunate that we were seen as a better alternative to some of those gang members than their leader, Fahad Kwame, and their allegiances were more towards us. This is one that ended successfully. I'm sure there's one in the annals of Glenn Brown's career that you, that's still open that you'd like to solve. Anything jump to mind? There always will be. There will always be people who slip through the net. Um, I think I've been incredibly fortunate that almost all of the jobs I've been involved in, there has been some successful resolution to them, but um, there will always be some that got away, I guess. You've worked a lot of homicide cases. What do you think makes a successful homicide detective? I think attention to detail and tenacity, you, um, you can't give up. It doesn't matter what happens. Uh, I've mentioned strategies throughout um, this interview, but um, 
it certainly doesn't mean that strategies always work. It's probably quite rare when they do go to plan. But I think uh, the qualities of a, a good homicide investigator are to pick yourself up when something fails, choose the next strategy and keep going. Eventually, something's bound to work. So I think tenacity um, and that, that never-say-die attitude, but also um, an attention to, to detail is very important. Your boss, Danny Doherty, talks about calmness. You've certainly got that. And a certain detachment, because these are very emotional, dramatic cases. You're dealing with families, you're dealing with horrific scenes, you've been to many. How important is it in the long term to maintain a certain detachment and yet being able to engage professionally without losing sight of what you're trying to do because of the emotion and the circumstances. And that's definitely true. I know I try to um, impart that upon um, the people that I work with these days that you need to take the emotion out of things. You need to try and focus on your objective and, and not let that emotion control your actions. I remember many years ago, Adam, being at a murder scene where um, someone had been shot in the head and I remember uh, a bit of brain matter dripping onto my face and uh, in the middle of all that turmoil I remember getting a call and someone told me that Steve Irwin had died and I remember being incredibly shocked by the fact that Steve Irwin was dead, someone that you would presume could never die. He was such a, a big character in the Australian lifestyle and, but I remember it dawning on me that day that for whatever reason I had become incredibly detached from murders and, and what we do as police. I don't think there's any place for ego in the work we do. Um, the jobs we do aren't for us, they're for the victims and the victims' families. We have a very simple job to try and find out what happened and, and to put offenders before the courts. It has very little to do with us. Whenever I present to young detectives, I try and explain to them that um, you need to get back up and pick yourself up. Whenever you try something and it doesn't work out, to, to get back up and give something else a go and to never give up. I know that a lot of police fall in the trap of developing a case theory about what they think um, happened when someone was murdered and they're pursuing that, that theory, perhaps to the detriment of other possibilities sometimes. But um, I learned very early on in my homicide career that um, you're not always right. In fact, you're quite often more wrong than right. When I first started out at the homicide squad as a bit of a, a, bit of a lesson to myself, I started trying to decide who was responsible for a murder very early on. And no one knew about this, but I used to write down on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope. I think my hope was that I could pull it out at some stage later in the investigation and say, see, I knew who did it all along. But um, the reality is I learned very quickly that I was wrong most times. But it taught me a very important lesson to never focus on one light of inquiry, to never focus on a single case theory and think you've got it right and disregard other evidence. Our job is to simply gather all of the evidence and see where it takes us at the end of the day, not to focus on one thing um, and disregard other things. Yeah, it's very good. I think they say in detective training school, uh, the mind is like a parachute. It only works when it's open. Definitely. I like that. But it's very true. If anybody out there has any information on any homicide, or in fact, any crime in New South Wales or across the country for that matter, you can always call Crime Stoppers 1800 000. Thank you so much for your time today, Detective Chief Inspector Glenn Brown. My pleasure. Thanks, Adam. That was Detective Chief Inspector Glenn Brown of the Homicide Squad. The New South Wales Police Force relies on the public's help to resolve crime. 
If you have any information, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 000. Next time on Inside the New South Wales Police Force, we'll take a look at cybercrime law enforcement and how one ring operating from inside an immigration detention centre was taken down. Thanks for listening to Inside the New South Wales Police Force. I'm Adam Shand. Inside the New South Wales Police Force is a Real Crime Australia production in association with the New South Wales Police Force. The host producer is Adam Shand. Editing and imaging by Matt Dwyer. For New South Wales Police, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Senior Constable Ashley Bold and Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band. To find out more about any of our products discussed on today's episode, speak to us on 131 728 or visit policebank.com.au because banking with Police Bank means banking where you belong. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Charles Sturt University, providing education for the New South Wales Police Force and law enforcement worldwide for over 30 years. Do you want to become a cop or further your policing career? We can help. Visit csu.edu.au forward slash policing to learn more.